Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm Jacqueline Ganon. Today, I'm joined by B. Toasty Oster, a staff writer on the Indigenous Affairs Desk at High Country News, a nonprofit magazine that covers the West. Toasty has written for numerous outlets and now focuses on stories that highlight social and environmental justice for Native nations and the consequences of colonialism in the West. They're a member of the Choctaw Nation and were recently a finalist in the National Magazine Awards for their feature story, Underwater Legends, which is the first feature story they've ever written, by the way. Today, we're talking about Toasty's work, why having Native stories told by Native journalists is so important, and how non-Native people should report responsibly on Indigenous communities. But a first word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. Hey, Toasty, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. So my first question is going back to the beginning. What first drew you to journalism? Well, I was always kind of a film buff growing up. And so the first thing that probably drew me to the profession was uh, seeing those kind of old Hollywood depictions of journalists as like these wise cracking hard boiled gumshoes, you know, newsroom movies. I would always watch a newsroom movie. So at some point I kind of started to think like, maybe I belong in a newsroom. What are some of your favorite? movies well favorite newsroom movies i i really liked his girl friday um all the president's men you know some of the classics but i mean there's been a lot of great ones recently too like um spotlight and she said yeah those are on my list i need to get watching those so after that inspiration that's led you to your current role which is staff writer at high country news uh, which is a nonprofit magazine that covers the west so can you talk about the kinds of stories that you cover for high country news Yeah, I cover Indigenous Affairs, which is a wonderful topic, and it's also a pretty broad umbrella, so uh, that could involve a lot of environmental reporting. Uh, I might be writing about a Native restaurant, you know, opening uh, on the West Coast, or even uh, interviewing Chuck Sams, which I got to do last year. He's the first Indigenous director of the National Park Service. It sounds like you have a lot of freedom to kind of choose your own topics. How do you generally find story ideas? There's definitely no shortage of Native stories that need to be covered. There are way more stories than Native journalists, from my point of view. So there's a lot to choose from. And I kind of just follow my gut, but I also think about uh, what stories are not being told or are being told in maybe an insufficient way or with uh, colonial framing instead of an indigenous framing. So I I do, I'm lucky to have a lot of freedom in finding topics and following my nose. But at the end of, you know, at the end of the day, it really comes back to like, what am I doing here with my career, which for me is um, supporting native communities Yeah, that is definitely so crucial, especially just as I've gotten older and learned more about history and how it still affects Native nations and everybody today, how that dynamic kind of continues, I think is so important to talk about. So why is it important, as you said, to have Indigenous stories told by reporters who are Indigenous? A lot of the time, a non-Native reporter, when faced with an Indigenous affairs issue, maybe doesn't know the right questions to ask to really get to the root issues of what's going on. For example, there's a contested 
piece of renewable energy infrastructure um, that's being proposed in Eastern Washington. And it had been covered pretty widely, but it had been, it had been covered by non-native reporters mostly. And the way that it was usually framed was like, well, there's this, you know, green energy infrastructure that people are trying to build. And then there's these native people saying it's on sacred lands and they don't want it built there. And like, oh, what a problem. Who's to say, you know, and they just kind of essentially like both sizing it, which to me is like a starting point. But that's not deep reporting. You know, nobody was going in there and asking, where's the money in this? Like, where's the financial motivation coming from? Who are the power players? What's their motivation? Why is this place considered sacred? What's really at stake? And what, you know, who's pulling the levers behind all of this? And it's not that a, a non-native reporter couldn't ask those questions or do that reporting. It's just that an indigenous person, you know, is gonna look at some of those colonial mechanisms differently and probably be more naturally motivated to dig in and find those pressure points that are creating the problem instead of just leaving it at this surface level reporting of like both sides in it. So that's one reason. I mean, cultural competence and sensitivity is another reason that's a, that's a whole big topic. And it also just matters that we have agency over how we're depicted. I mean, I'm not depicting people from my tribal culture, you know, but at least being from a tribal culture, you know, uh, and being part of the native community, when I'm speaking to people from other tribes, they can have some assurance knowing that they're speaking one native to another. And that changes the conversations that we have. It changes the reporting. I think those are such good points. And it goes back to that wider conversation, I think, about the journalism industry and why it's so important to have people from different backgrounds, because that is just something you can't teach in J school. So one of your pieces I read recently is called Underwater Legends, and it's a feature you wrote in 2022 about the relationship between the Pacific lamprey and Native nations in the Northwest. And for context, a lamprey is a type of jawless fish, and that was a feature writing finalist in the 2023 Magazine Awards. So congratulations on that. Can you talk about working on that project, kind of where that idea came from, what the process of reporting was like, and then what it felt like to be recognized for on a national level? Yeah, I mean, it felt amazing. It was really a surprise. To, that was my first feature. I was not expecting it to get that kind of attention at all. It was a wonderful feeling. And I, I really, you know, I'm really hoping that with the attention that that story's gotten, you know, touching people's hearts as far as opening people to being more passionate towards cultural issues that tribes are facing. And the reporting for that came out of this cultural question, because I had reported on Lamprey before, from like more of a science writing perspective, fully satisfy me because there was something that science writing couldn't answer. But I eventually realized it was something cultural. Like I wanted to understand why lamprey are so culturally important to these tribes, why the tribes are working so hard and, and you know, and caring so diligently, um, pretty much under the radar and unassisted, you know, in caring for these animals that have been, you know, mostly ignored or even extirpated by people outside tribal communities. You know, there's something cultural going on there. Like there's some reason they're important. Things aren't just randomly assigned with this label of being sacred. Like there's, you know, so what is it? Why, you know, why do they care so much? And 
that was the driving question behind that reporting. And the whole like lamprey topic came out of this conversation that I had with Yurok fish scientists when I was reporting on the Klamath dams. It was actually my first assignment for HCN. And we'd kind of gone through our questions, you know, talking as a like a fish biologist and a reporter. And then we were just kind of chatting like native to native, you know, and he was laughing about how people love salmon so much. And so they, you know, definitely lean into this narrative that like, we've got to save the Klamath River, we've got to take the dams down because it'll save the salmon, you know, because that's a selling point to non-native people. You know, if people don't care about indigenous rights or don't care about cultural preservation, they probably care about salmon. So, you know, that's their talking point. But it, so he sort of quipped to me that, like, you know, if we told people we're doing this for lamprey, nobody's going to listen, you know? And I'm like, okay, haha, ha. like we had a laugh about it. But I kept thinking about that, you know, for days and days and days. I was like, yeah, he's right. But like, but like, why don't people care about lamprey? Why do tribal people care about lamprey? What's going on there? So out of that kind of, you know, native insider joke came this, you know, this line of reporting. Uh, you know, I realized that like, this is a really fascinating species that has been underreported and that, you know, the public will, could probably fall in love with if it knew, if people knew more about this animal and the tribes caring for them. I love that it was one, one little thing, like you just said, you know, one off, maybe off the cuff joke that just stays in the back of your mind. And you're like, wait, what, what is that about that? And I feel like really good ideas when they don't leave you alone like that. That's a great feeling. Cause you're like, oh, that's, this actually be something to look into. Yeah, it's a good sign. If that happens, you know, just bring it up with your editor. And luckily I had a really cool editor who who immediately saw the value in that. When people believe in your work, that's a really, really great feeling. And good stories come out of it. <laughs> so before that piece and before High Country News, you were a freelancer. Um, and when I Googled your name, it was amazing to see how many publications <laughs> showed up. So that includes Indian Country Today, Foreign Policy, Underscore, and Mother Jones, among others. So what was your journey to becoming a freelancer like before your current role? I was working in PR writing and that was not a good fit for me, but I was very excited that somebody was paying me to write for the first time in my life. Um, and, you know, I started to realize little by little that what I wanted to be writing about was native issues and that I wanted to be doing proper journalism instead of PR and I'd always wanted to write for ICT um, which was called Indian Country Today at the time and I just went out on a limb one day and pitched him I was like you know I basically don't know what I'm doing but you gotta start somewhere right and you'll never know unless you take a shot so I Gave it a shot and the editor liked my pitch and they greenlit my story. And I was just amazed. Like, I couldn't believe that was happening to me. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I'm not really a journalist. Do you know that? But, you know, I didn't say that to them, but that's how I was feeling. And um, and it led to more work. So I wrote a few stories for them. Um, and I suppose the rest is history. So I sort of learned as I went, you know, I didn't, didn't get to go to J school and I probably would have had less of a steep learning curve if I had. Um, but yeah, I've had to learn along the way. 
That I love that so much because as someone who is in J school, I, I love my classes, but the way that I really learned journalism was at my college paper and kind of the same thing. I showed up and was like, what do I do to become a reporter? So I love to hear that that's how you you just approach it because I think it's so important to learn by doing and learn from others. That's what I love about journalism. So that's really wonderful. And so once you started freelancing more, how did you kind of learn to adapt your pitches to these different publications and figure out what they were looking for? I feel like I was just starting to get the hang of that when I got an internship and I didn't have to freelance anymore. It's tricky. Um, I just started to find that there were certain editors that I clicked with a little bit more than others, meaning that kind of like what we were saying before, like they could they could see the value that I saw in a story idea and help me finesse it along the way. You know, when you find those editors, go back and work with them again, you know, try to get more, more work from them. And when you find editors that give you a lot of freedom, you know, that's always really nice too. I, I wrote for Street Roots for a long time because I found a really good working relationship there. And, you know, at the same time, it's nice to be challenged by an editor who like helps you hone your craft. So I think there's a there's kind of a balance there of like you want to find, you know, editors who give you a lot of space to work. On the other hand, you also want to find editors who like challenge you and help you grow and cultivate those relationships just like you cultivate source relationships. You know, relationships with editors are important and they're all different. Yeah, that's a really good point. I always find I have to remind myself to keep reaching out to people, just like you said, sources and editors, you know, that I've worked with before. Um, so looking forward to one of your future projects. So you were selected to partner with ProPublica's local reporting network, which is such a cool project. Can you talk about what investigative project you're going to be working on? We are doing a year-long investigation into green colonialism in the Pacific Northwest. And green colonialism is the phenomenon of colonialist patterns repeating themselves in the context of renewable energy and fighting climate change. We're looking at how renewable energy infrastructure that's being proposed in the Pacific Northwest is keeping tribes at a disadvantage and threatening to destroy tribal cultural resources and so on and so forth, and what the mechanisms are that are allowing that to happen pretty much unchecked. So we should be publishing our first story uh, soon in the next uh, couple of months here. And I'm pretty excited about it. I'll be able to talk more in more detail, you know, after we've published, of course. Yeah, for sure. I think that is such, such an interesting premise. And I, it goes back to what you said towards the beginning about there's so many stories that are impacting Native communities and just like not enough people in time to tell them because everything intersects with that and like with that history and cultural heritage. So I'm very excited to read those when they come out. And another thing, like you mentioned before, it's so important to have people from communities covering those communities. But like you also mentioned, there's not enough Native journalists. So some non-Native journalists will end up covering Native issues in communities. So what are the things that they should know approaching those stories? For non-Natives, I mean, there is a lot, there's a lot to learn. Like, honestly, you're going to have some homework, like learn your history, 
the local history of the tribal culture that you're reporting on, read their treaties, you know, reporting on native issues, if you allow it to, will challenge your, your worldview, uh, and it should. And I think non-native and native reporters alike, we all just need to be aware when we're going into native communities to report that reporting can actually do a lot of harm. And we need to understand the power that a journalist has and the power dynamic between us and our sources, between us and the communities that we report on. And I, I try to go in with an attitude of first do no harm. So one of the ways to make sure that we're not doing harm, for example, if you're talking to an elder or just a tribal citizen who is a source on a story, if they're sharing their stories with you, maybe their personal history or their family history, or it may be uh, a cultural story like a, a creation legend or something like that, always need to be asking and double checking and triple checking, is this suitable to share with the public? Uh, because it might not be. Start a conversation with them by just laying out, you know, very gently, like what it means that I'm a reporter, what it means that, you know, for you to be speaking with me. This is how the process is going to go. Um, if you want to say something off the record, or if, you know, if you say something that you then realize, you know, shouldn't be published, please tell me so I know to honor that and respect that. We don't always know. We can't always anticipate how our reporting um, can be harmful. And, and so it's just important to be real sensitive about checking in with people along the way when you're interviewing them. And then don't disappear. You know, parachute journalism can be really awful. And if you're practicing extractive journalism, that's automatically a problem. You know, in native communities, everything is about relationships. And so when you go into a native community as a reporter, First of all, expect to be mistrusted, expect to be, you know, ignored and expect to have to put in time to build relationships. And if you take that time and build trust and show that you're accountable and follow up after the reporting with links to your work, with print copies of your work and looking for feedback and looking to present yourself to the community and show your face, you know, if you can't go back into that community and show your face humbly and confidently, after you've reported and published, then you should probably think about why that is. Building those relationships over time is not just, you know, an ethical practice and helps to keep from putting vulnerable communities in more vulnerable positions. It also just leads to more great stories because that's how, you know, when you start to build trust, that's how you know, you get invited on like healing trips to go catch lamprey and things like that. You know, these doors open because people realize like, okay, we've worked with this person before. We've seen their reporting. We know that they're accountable. You know, we can let them, we can let them in. The idea of kind of over communicating, I think is so important. And like exactly what you said, following up and really building those strong relationships is so important. And it, it can sometimes feel like, oh, I have to, you know, set a reminder to reach out to these people, but putting in those steps will come back tenfold. And so finally, what other advice do you have for people who want to become journalists, uh, maybe especially those that aren't currently represented in the industry as much as they should be? I mean, for non-native, aspiring non-native journalists, I would just say, please, please, like, jump in the water. We need you. We need lots of you. Um 
and for you know journalists from all, all kinds of you know marginalized backgrounds um I mean, the only advice I really have is just to start by doing, because that's what I did. Just start by doing. And, you know, it's not an easy industry as far as jobs goes. I mean, I think we all see, you know, it seems, feels like every week there's a new publication that's just shedding jobs, you know, by the dozens. And it can be really scary um, and daunting. But if you're willing to freelance and you're positioned to be able to freelance, then just start there, you know, and do the best you can because the, you know, the industry problems are, are economic, but what we're doing, you know, is, is critical work. You know, it's a public service and we need trans people writing about trans issues. We need native people writing on native issues and, and so on and so forth. I love that advice. Again, just jump in and learn by doing and you can't get a yes until you get a lot of no's as I've learned but that's wonderful advice and thank you so much for joining me I really enjoyed our conversation me too thanks so much for having me it's been nice to be here thank you again to Toasty for joining me on this episode and thank you for tuning into the lead I'm your host Jacqueline Ganon our executive producer is Charlotte Barnum and this show is supported by the Cox Institute To keep up with the lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on X, formerly Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. See you next time.